So if you feel passionate and you're annoyed that you're not talking to enough customers, then why don't you just start doing it? And you may think, well, I don't know which customers to talk to, or I don't really have access to the right ones. It doesn't matter. Just start somewhere. Because if you say, well, I I heard from this customer this, people are going to start listening to you, right? Because they're going to, it's inherently people are going to care about that statement. So that's just one example. But what are the things that your company's not doing? And what are the things you could just start doing, even if it's a little tiny version or even an imperfect version? Don't let this pursuit of perfection stop you from doing something good. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today we're talking to Douglas Ferguson, who's here to join us and talk a lot about culture. Welcome, Douglas. Hi, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Douglas, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, of course. Um, Douglas Ferguson, founder of Voltage Control. We're a change agency. Essentially, what we mean by that is that we help facilitate change. So we train on facilitation techniques and we facilitate lots of different moments for teams that are navigating or looking to accelerate or sustain change in different ways, whether it's strategy sessions or even just problem solving of any sort. It's great. Yeah. Douglas and I know each other. We've been part of this little group of consultants for a while. I very much specialize in product management, but Douglas goes in and does everything. I feel like you you really concentrate on the change aspect of stuff, no matter what that really entails. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about what that means, because I have product leaders all the time approaching me saying, how do I change my company culture? How do I usher this through? And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are like, yeah, that's me. Like I I have to figure out how to change this organization from operating the way it has operated for the last 100 years, 20 years, however big you are, into a new thriving product org. And what does that entail? So I'd love to hear, how do you get started with change initiatives when an organization calls you up and says, hey, like, we're trying to change our culture to be more product-led. Where do you even start? Like, how do you even figure out where to begin with that? So where to start? That's always a good question, right? And often that can be the moment that many people are struggling with, just even how to get begin with the change, right? I think our classic situations are, there's this analysis paralysis, like I don't even know how to start. Other times people are stuck in the messy middle where they got this momentum, but then it's just like they got in the weeds and then trying to get untangled is difficult. And then sometimes maybe they got out of the messy middle and they're just, they can't seem to like wrap it up. You know, they can't seem to just get it done. And so I think the first thing that we do is try to figure out where they are in the journey. You know, we're kind of in fact-finding mode. And usually that'll happen when we're first meeting them. But when we're actually starting to engage and, and work with a client, it always starts with the people. And that will, we'll be learning quite a bit in the discovery pieces around what the key, the key, key players are. We're trying to identify the folks that are totally on board with this change. 
like who are excited about it and the champions of the change. Also, where are the people that are against the change? Like the detractors. And then who are the people in the middle and where do they fall in the spectrum? Real big fan of, of a book called Cascades by a good friend of mine, Greg Sattel, where he talks about the spectrum of allies. So that's a really nice model to think about. But ultimately, focusing in on who the key players are and who are the people that are against this and what's really motivating their perspective as to why this is not a good change. And then you can start unpacking, okay, these are the detractors to change. This is where the resistance is. And we can start analyzing and putting together approaches, right? And and maybe I should step back and say, sometimes there's a situation where we shouldn't be making the change at all. And so that will sometimes surface in the, the workshops we're doing with clients as we're starting to explore the needs and explore the problem. When do companies actually need to change? Like, what have you seen in a mismatch when you come into an organization and people are like, oh my God, we need to change. And you question that, like, do they actually need to change? What's usually pushing it? The thing that comes to mind was the example that you posed in the pre-show chat when we were just kind of getting on around hearing from a lot of product leaders that maybe they got a new job or promotion and they had this vision of how product could be so much better at this organization. And it's like, I got to change this culture to, to make a difference, to get where we need to go. And that is potentially problematic because if you focus on the change of the culture, then that's the decision you're making. That is a, not a small feat. And so that means you're not going to be able to accomplish other things that you might be interested in accomplishing. And so we're really kind of prioritizing what is the change that we want to see? Is it that broader cultural change? Or is it that we want to see these benefits in the product or you know these needs that are unmet for the customer starting to get met? What is the most important change that we want to prioritize? And let's focus on that first. Because sometimes like this focus on or we get distracted by a real big change that's interesting or alluring in some way. And it's sometimes the small change or the things that we have in front of us that we can we can go and implement. That's the very thing that we should be focusing on. And the beautiful thing about that is it creates momentum because if we make a change that has a positive impact, then we can point to that as a case study to say, this is the success I was able to create. And that's much more powerful than saying that, well, I came from Amazon and we did it in Amazon like this and we need to do it that way here because so many people can dismiss that in the organization by saying, well, we're not Amazon. We don't work like Amazon. So I think the, the key is focusing in on what are the key outcomes that this change is going to drive for the organization and are there other things that we may need to accomplish first or instead of this change? Because When we're talking about changing the way that people operate or come together and work, that can be a lot of work. And sometimes, you know, there are other goals. There are other reasons we were hired. Yeah, like what you're talking about, you know, as you mentioned, we were talking about this before we jumped into recording. But what I see is tons of new chief product officers or, you know, they could even be experienced chief product officers. They come into organizations and they look around and they go, wow, they haven't been doing product management well that means that I need to go change the culture, right? That's how people will put it. And I hear from a lot of product leaders that they spend like 80% of their time, 90% of the time changing the culture, right? Like whatever that is in quotes. (laughs) From my experience, 
a lot of the people who do that don't do exactly what you were talking about, what they were hired for. They spend so much time kind of like walking around and telling people, doing presentations that are like, hey, you need to be focusing on outcomes. And hey, sales, you need to be not dictating to us what to do. This is the way we want to work. And you need to change the way that you approach this. And what they're not doing is like building the product strategy that they were hired to build for so that people aren't reactive, so that sales has a pipeline of features that they could actually sell to new customers. And they don't do that. And they spend so much time trying to get other people to change that they don't change the parts of the organization they actually have control over. And that's one of the big reasons I see people fail in product management roles. And that's also why I think I try, I try to screen for that in a lot of calls. And when people say mm-hmm. like, well, I changed this whole organization. It's like, well, what did you do tactically? But did you help the organization still achieve its goals? Did that change result in what it was doing? So very similar to what you're talking about. And I love the concept of like, you know, to me, people asked, how do I change a culture? And I was like, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. So let's go talk to Douglas on the podcast about it instead. What would you say to those people who are listening to this, who are questioning, like, is it a culture change that's really needed versus do I just need to do my job and show people what good looks like because I'm in that position? How do you know when it's really a culture change? And like, what does it mean to actually change a culture? Here's the thing, though. If you want to change the culture, you had to do that stuff first anyway. And so the point I was trying to make was that it's healthy to step back and even just look at why am I trying to do this culture change? Because often that exploration around the why and the purpose will lead to some epiphanies around, wait a second, if I'm really going to accomplish these things, then there might be some precursors for that change. Because if we don't show those examples, if we don't have the case studies, if we can't demonstrate that, hey, I found a salesperson who is working in a way that's conducive to more better customer discovery and to building product in the best way. Then we built out this example of how we got something done in record time and pleased the customer in a really amazing way. And then also, what did we not do? What did we think we were going to build and then end up not having to build because of these discoveries made along the way? And then we can make a really strong case around this is the saving, this is the direct impact we made to the organization. Also, the stuff I was talking about earlier around these notion of allies, like who is on board and who is against us. And I want to kind of come back to anchoring on some really solid facilitation foundations because everything we do is based on facilitation. In fact, I used to refer to us as a facilitation agency until I realized that A, no one really understood what that meant. And then B, every time we're helping customers and clients, it's when they're in a moment of change. So we just kind of honored that fact, right? It was just just a reflection of what we noticed. And at the bedrock of this notion of facilitation is that we're going to approach the people as the source of the solutions. And we're going to create safe environments for people to speak their minds and let the truth emerge. And rather than being advocates, we're going to inquire. And so if someone is a product leader, whether they're new in the organization or not, and they want to see the organization change to adopt better, uh, more productive product behaviors and techniques, I think an inquiry approach will be much more effective than an advocacy approach. And so when you talked about the slides and, and going around and pitching sales on new behaviors and stuff, that's advocacy. They're going around and saying, this is how it should be done. 
Whereas inquiry is much more about why haven't we done it this way before? Because then you're understanding not only who your advocates are, because the people that respond to that question with, yeah, you know, it's ridiculous we haven't done it that way before. Now you know, okay, Michelle, she's on board with us. And then, you know, you talk to someone else and they're like, well, we don't do it that way because we're not Silicon Valley startup and da 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 And, you know, they have all these reasons. You realize, okay, they are not for us. They're against us. <laughs> and understanding that's really important. So knowing that Steve's against us means that we need to listen very carefully to Steve, but we don't want to be, we don't want to be presenting and advocating to Steve. Because if we do that, now we're arming Steve with all of our knowledge and all of our know-how and all of our approaches and all of our techniques, and then he can go use it against us. He can shift it and translate it in ways, distort it, make it sound bad, and we definitely don't want that. So we want to listen intently to Steve and everything that he has to say so that then we can learn from it and we can think about how we want to now go talk to Michelle and arm her with more data on how we can spread a better message so that Steve can't then convince other people to like go against us, right? This is just classic like advocacy without having to go and present and advocate directly on a position. And then the other thing that we can learn from Steve is what he values. So as he's telling us all these things that he thinks are important, like why we haven't done it that way, we can start to understand nuanced things about the way that he feels about these things. And a great example is around the um, the Agile Manifesto, right? If we come in and we were, we were like, hey, we should adopt Agile and check out the Agile Manifesto. It's awesome. Well, CEO, they're just going to be like, Agile Manifesto, what are you talking about? And they might read it or glance at it and they're like, whatever. But if you realize like, that there's something they value deeply and it's super important to them, and especially if they're doing OKRs or some kind of like strategy deployment approach where you know exactly what's important, and you can align with those and then also align with other things they personally value, then wow, you're really going to get somewhere with, with people. And that's when you can start to turn on a little bit of advocacy. But if we don't really go through that inquiry first and apply just general kind of people understanding techniques, just like we would for understanding where the problem is and opportunity for a product, then we're going to fail. Yeah. What's like these detractors that pop up that, you know, don't try to sell them can you ever sway them to your side? And if so, what have you seen work? You can sway them. I think the trick is to understand it's a spectrum. So there's going to be some folks on the far, far, far end that are just against you because they it's like personal. For some reason, they just don't like you, you know, and they're going to make up any which reason to, you know, be against whatever you stand for. So those people... You can listen to them because they're going to be spinning some arguments and you're going to want to be prepared to like talk to your team and the people you're wanting to support and are with you so that they don't get swayed. Then you've got folks that are neutral or folks that are kind of passive detractors. They're kind of like, nah, I don't, I'm, they're skeptical. Those are the ones that I think you, you can sway over. And, and think of it like a, a domino effect. If you convince the passive supporters, you know, Michelle's all about it. She's like, yeah, I get it. Like she's showing up to all the meetings and the rallies. And, you know, but like there's probably someone just adjacent to her on this spectrum that you want to talk to and pull toward your side. Then once you have those on board, then you, you're starting to pull, pull more toward the neutrals and the passive detractors. That's how you kind of build momentum and really focusing on the folks that kind of get it, but they need a little bit more detail, a little more convincing. And then guess what? 
those folks become advocates for you. And then that has a ripple throughout the organization. And I think the, as much as you can kind of activate these sleeper cells, if you will, but also you got to be willing to be receptive to what they're saying. Just like we're building agile products, we should be building agile process when we should be co-creating along the way. And so if one of our neutrals or our passive supporters has a real issue with some way that we're thinking about rolling out this new process or the way that we're the way that we're going to be interviewing customers, for instance. Let's just say something as simple as that. Or maybe it's some way where we're going to roll out like Jira because they're not using our Jira or some other tool that you're thinking about rolling out and someone has a bone to pick about it. Well, understanding that and really listening and then internalizing and thinking about how you respond to that is really powerful because then you build trust that you care and you listen and that there's going to be improvements and changes made to support everyone. And then it's just like it builds and builds and builds and grows. So one of the issues I've run into, and I think a lot of people have too, when they've tried to embark on change in a large organization, I've seen a lot of executives come in and be like, we should be doing agile. We should be doing product, right? Like we need to do this. But then when it comes time for them to act or change their behavior, they don't do it. How can you tell if an executive is really dedicated to that change, if they understand the change? Like, what do you do when you walk into an organization and you run into that issue? You know, I'll say this. It's a lot more difficult if you're inside the organization. And it can go both ways, right? Because it can be really challenging if you're trying to convince, if you're the lone designer in a startup that kind of like was growing fast and they just hired you because they're like, we need some design and they didn't really invest in design and you're trying to convince them of the real value of design. It can be really, really tough, right? Because it's like, they're just, they're not really investing and it's almost like they're just checking a box because they read in Fast Company that they needed to do it or something, right? And then so specifically what you were asking around the executives actually saying, we're going to do it, then it's just kind of lip service. And then, you know, everyone's kind of waiting around to do it. You know, it's a lot tougher if you're just on the team, kind of being like, okay, when are we going to see this? Whereas for us, the fact that we got brought in means they're committing because, you know, they're clearly dedicating budget to make this happen. The thing that we're looking out for is there's some kind of signals for us, right? I don't know if you've heard the term sheep dipping, but Daniel Stillman and I were talking about it recently. This idea of just like, let's just dunk a few sheep in some training and then they'll just, it's not really going to transform anything, right? You know, if when we're talking to them about this change and what their goals are and they're like really kind of skewing this down to like something really small, like a couple day workshop, they're clearly not interested in any ongoing coaching whether they're in group work and individual work, and they don't seem to really have a good handle on who who might the cha- who the change makers might be. That's problematic, right? Because it's clear that they're probably not in it for the right reasons. And we're kind of in a special seat because we can ask about well, what is the purpose? Why do you want to do this? And unpack that with them. So we're already applying a lot of our techniques the minute that a biz dev conversation happens, right? We're starting to ask <laughs> like um, and workshop them. But if you're internal, which is probably what most listeners are, and they're kind of in this situation where they're thinking, how do I deal with this leader? And it's probably going to differ quite drastically depending on level of seniority and confidence levels and whatnot. But as much as you can, from the very early on, start to ask pointed questions around intention and purpose, desired outcomes, what are the plans? 
How are they budgeting for this stuff? And I would say, like, if you're getting hired into an organization and there's promises made around this kind of stuff, or if you're even contemplating leading, but they're making promises about this stuff, then treat it like you would your equity negotiations and your salary negotiations. Let's get real specific, you know? What is your intention? How you're planning on rolling this out? Do you have plans around completion dates, kickoff dates? Who's going to be in charge of rolling this out? How much you're going to spend on it? These kinds of things. Because if they don't have answers for those kinds of questions, it probably means that they haven't put any thought into it or they don't have any intention of doing it. And if it's still a little too early in the process for them to have concrete answers, like numbers and figures and things, you should still be able to intuit based on the way that they're responding. You know, you just kind of like really just have to listen to your gut. Are they spinning some yarn or they they seem to really be giving me answers that give me confidence? Yeah, that's really wise. I like that. Treat it like you're negotiating any other part of your compensation package to come on, make sure that they're committed. I think that will really help. Let's pretend to you're not a leader because this is probably the most frequent question I get asked on the podcast at conferences and stuff. It's always from a team level product manager who says, my organization doesn't work the way that you describe in escaping the bill trap. How do I change it? Can they change it? Like if you are a team level product manager, can you be successful in changing an organization? It's possible. You know, Karen Holst wrote a book and I was the co-author with her on that called Start Within. And this is the whole concept of that book is how someone, no matter where they are in the organization, can make change. And I've already talked about a few of the things that we mentioned in that book, which is definitely be clear about the change that you're seeking. Don't just say, I'm going to change the way that we do work. And in fact, one of the chapters is called House Rules. We kind of made this analogy to Monopoly. You know, Karen talked about playing Monopoly a lot when she was young and and when she'd visit a friend's house, if they had different rules than they had at her house, she just played by the rules at that house. It would be a lot more painful to be like, well, we played this way at my house. And so definitely don't want to roll in and just say, hey, well, Melissa said this in her book. Really pay attention to the way that things are done there. And are there ways to adjust and nuance and iterate? Really, I would encourage people to look at kata. Like, what is this big mountain of a change that we're hoping to make? And what's a little incremental thing we can do? I want to lose a bunch of weight. So I'm going to start walking every day. The only thing I have to do today is go for a walk. And so what's the version of that for your organization? When you look at Melissa's book and you think about all the things that instead of looking at all the things that you're not doing today, what's something that you're doing today that resembles something in the book, but maybe you're not doing as good as you could? Or maybe there's just like some slight modification that if you were to change it, then you would start seeing some benefit. And then people will see that benefit and appreciate it. And then so on and so on and so on. And so what's that first domino that you can flip? And also encourage you to also think about what you have within your locus of change. What is under your control that you can say, I'm going to go do this without asking for permission and just change the way I'm doing it. So, so many times I hear people saying, well, our, our company doesn't talk to customers. And my response is always like, well, what's stopping you? Usually not because they don't care about what the customer is saying. It's usually because there's processes and there's a flywheel spun up and there's certain meetings on certain days and people are just inundated with all this crap that's coming at them and they're doing all the things and 
just this notion of like introducing a new thing to do is just difficult. And so if you feel passionate and you're annoyed that you're not talking to enough customers, then why don't you just start doing it? And you may think, well, I don't know which customers to talk to, or I don't really have access to the right ones. It doesn't matter. Just start somewhere. Because if you say, well, I I heard from this customer this, people are going to start listening to you, right? Because they're going to, it's inherently people are going to care about that statement. So that's just one example. But what are the things that your company's not doing? And what are the things you could just start doing, even if it's a little tiny version or even an imperfect version? Don't let this pursuit of perfection stop you from doing something good. I love that. That's one of the ones I use as an example too, like the talking to customers piece. I've run into organizations, a lot of financial organizations that are like, well, we're not allowed to go talk to customers, right? And they get stopped by bureaucracy. So I spent a long time as a consultant going to the next level up from that person and being like, okay, they're saying they're not allowed to talk to customers. Like, can they go talk to customers? They're like, no, we're not allowed to. Okay, who says that? And just like tracing it up the path to whoever is like the last person. And it's really interesting because it's usually like, oh no, you're allowed to go talk to customers. Like, that's fine. It's just that, you know, you have to do it X, Y, Z before you go do it. And I feel like these stories get told in these organizations about like why we can't do things. And it's the status quo, right? It's always been this way. This is how we operate and that's how we get there. How do you break through some of that barrier at the beginning, right? Like some of that immediate, oh, we can't do that, right? If you're trying Mm -hmm. to introduce this into organizations, how do you react to that? How do you kind of break that down a little bit? Well, it's always the same, right? It comes back to the inquiry. It's conversations and it's digging into why. It's like you just get really good at asking why in so many different ways. Because it's pretty obnoxious just to say why all the time. You know, you'll sound like a three-year-old and annoy everyone. But you just, with practice, you get really good at finding new ways to rephrase the question why. <laughs> and even stuff like, you know, let's take that example. We can't talk to customers. And it's like, oh, has that always been the case? Was there ever a time when you could? You know, it's like, then you start to get stories. If people are defeated, they give you that whole just like, can't do that kind of answer. But if you start to ask really good questions, and I really recommend Wayne Berger's book, The More Beautiful Question. There's also, he has a companion, The Book of Questions. It's really good. And we have a free download called The Facilitator's Guide to Questions. It's like a lot of really good ones in it. But if you start asking provocative questions, then you start getting stories. And when people start telling you stories, then you start getting to the root of things. And I like your, your advice around following the thread of truth. And often that goes up the chain. But I do want to encourage people to think about the fact that there's informal networks because what you're describing is following the formal network up the chain of hierarchy. There's also informal networks too that can be very knowledge rich. And there's been a lot of study around informal networks. You know, it's things like if the company is going to shut down or there's going to be layoffs or you think there's going to be layoffs, who do you call? Who's in the know but isn't necessarily part of the chain? You know, those kinds of folks, like, really great to ask questions to because they'll start giving you insights that that maybe even pierce through this frozen middle where stuff tends to get clogged up. And then to add on to your story, I run into that a ton as well. A hilarious variant or maybe a sad variant of that is when it's a regulated space and the regulation says one thing, but the organization is enforcing an entirely different thing because they're taking a more aggressive view of the regulation just to be safe. 
which is ridiculous because I would argue it's pretty unsafe to restrict yourselves in ways that don't allow you to innovate. That has happened to me so many times. There was a regulation when I was working in this (laughs) kind of e-commerce type startup. I was helping it out and it said in the regulation that you have to put a notice for everybody in California. You know, in California, they have all the warnings about plastic and stuff like that somewhere where they could read it and the lawyers interpret it as right before you hit the buy button, it has to be really big size 24 font. And I was like, where does it say that in the law? And it doesn't, it just says like, it has to be readable to the person before they buy it. But they were trying to enforce it as like, it must look like this. And of course, conversion tanked, like if we enforced it there that way, because everybody was like, oh my God, what is this warning? Like, And all it's saying is that like your thing will be shipped in a plastic bag, right? Which is not like, not abnormal to a season, but it's crazy how many times that happens. And you're right. Like everybody tries to look at those regulations and then enforce it in completely different ways. What's something a product manager could do or designer or anybody to challenge those regulations and really understand like, where do they even look for that? How do they understand like what's really required and how do you challenge it? Yeah. You know, I think, There's a few things. One is quite often, I feel like there's maybe it's a a challenge or confidence issue where they just get told this is how it is and they just accept it. Whereas it's not that hard to like go find the regulation and read it, you know? And also I would say that I always like to tell people that legal is innovation's best friend because if you don't take that stance, they will become your worst nightmare. So befriend those people. Let them know that you have good intentions. And then when you come up against some challenge, because it's not always legal that's interpreting it weird. It could be a VP or a director or someone in some other risk or compliance group. And if you've got folks that you, you can trust and you can go to that can help you maybe navigate some of the trickier parts of the, like the legalese, then you're really set up for success because then they can help you make a stronger argument. But I would just say, you know, I'll crack it open, read it. That's a good first start. And then also, again, the inquiry, asking what is the impact to the organization for doing this, right? It's really funny to me when you talk about making a change that's going to impact conversion rate in some really negative way. And you can actually tie that back to a monetary loss and a poor experience for users. Okay, then let's look at the intent of the regulation. There's kind of the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, right? So in the spirit of the law, are we really hurting users in some way? So we don't, you know, there's ethics of like, we don't want to like push too far towards, you know, just the letter just so that we can improve click-through rate just to like grow the business when it's hurting people. But if it's not hurting anyone and we know that going the other route is going to tank our conversions, what is the potential risk? Literally, what's the fine that we would get? And it's ridiculous to me when I see people doing things that like you're going to take a, a half a million dollar hit on something that would be like a $10,000 fine. It's like, hmm, the math on that's pretty easy unless we're doing something really just evil. Then I would kind of steer toward more. Let's just like do the thing that's better for the user and then then find out because quite often we're dealing with stuff that's never been litigated. One of my startups where when I was CTO, we were doing a project that where we were collaborating with, with AT&T. And the product, you know, was targeted at, at children and families, really, because it was creating secure environments inside of Android devices and to a limited extent, um, Apple devices as well. More of a content play there. But, 
you know, we were subject to COPPA, the Child's Online Privacy and Protection Act. <laughs> the issue is that it had never been litigated. And so the reverse risk assessment thing that I was, the thing I was just describing to you was the reverse was applied to us because, you know, the AT&T lawyers were looking at any potential revenue they might have with us, tiny little startup. And they were like, that's a rounding error. But because COPPA has never been litigated, they didn't want to have a target on their back. And so they were, they literally made us require that if the app gets installed on a device, an email gets sent to whoever installed it, and they had to click accept in the email within 24 hours of the app won't work because they were worried about children installing the app and the parent not giving permission. Oh, wow. <laughs> so like talk about like impeding the first time use experience. It's like that was a situation where we were like, okay, I get, I can reason about why we're dealing with this because this puts a big target on their back and the potential revenue for them while it's very consequential for us, it's, it's a rounding error for a big company like at and Yeah, that's fascinating. Wow, I like that. I never thought about it with the flip side too. Like I've, I've been in situations where the CEO has literally been like, stop it, like stop spending, you know, a million dollars trying to fix that one thing that's going to cost me a thousand dollars if they find me for it. Like stop <laughs> when everybody jumps through the compliance hoops to do it. But I've never thought about the flip side, which is really fascinating. I like that idea of it could go both ways. I've also got a question on the, on this part, you know, as we were talking about CEOs. In my experience, I find that a lot of change initiatives or change period, it comes down to the CEO, right? Like it comes down to whoever is the, the leader of the organization saying, yeah, I want to go this way or that way. Is that true? Like it's been my experience for it, but I, I'm wondering if you've ever seen a time where you know, a CEO has been the detractor, right? We talk about attractors and detractors when they come to this. And I think I've seen a lot of CEOs be like passive detractors and get on board. But how do you know, first of all, I guess, too, if your CEO is an attractor or detractor, especially if you're, you know, a couple levels down in the organization? And do you find that a lot of the change starts or ends with them? And what do you do about that? Or how do you find out if they're going to be on board? Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess it doesn't necessarily, I mean, this could be a GM, it could be a director, a department head. I mean, it really depends on where this, whoever is going through these motions um, sits in the org and, and then who's a few rungs above them, right? Because ultimately, whoever that person is sitting up there could shut all this down, right? And so like, the question is maybe more broadly, like, how do I deal with like these people that could just shut it down or stop it all? And I think that, Again, a lot of what, what I've spoke about before is are great techniques for hedging against that, right? If we understand what's going on, because we're talking to everyone, we understand who the supporters are um, going through those informal networks, um, someone might have the ear of that person. If it is the CEO, somebody might just be really good friends with the CEO and knows all about her. And, you know, you can learn a lot through these informal networks. And then also it's, there's also timing around when you can maybe approach them. But I think that the trick is like not approaching them too early because A, ideally there's some momentum. You've done some homework. You understand what the goals are and what the interests are. Also, if it's a dark mystery on what the values of the CEO are and what the priorities of the company are, they're probably bigger concerns than this change. In fact, I would yeah. say if the values of the CEO are not clear and the priorities of the organization aren't clear, my advice would be to get out or to focus on that, that being your change. Is there a way that you can help them with strategy definition? And 
threw out OKRs a little earlier. If they're trying to do OKRs and they haven't figured out strategy yet, you should shut that down too and have them figure out the strategy before they try to deploy it. Oh man, but, um, so, so many know, people like, think strategy is OKRs too. And I like that point that you bring up. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's important to like My, it, talk about too. Yeah. That is Christina Watke's point. So if anyone has not seen her book, it's fantastic. Radical Focus, I think. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, and I, I love that. I love the thought of it, but I encourage everybody to go read it for themselves with Christina's book. Yeah, strategy is not OKRs. OKRs is not strategies. OKRs is a strategy deployment technique, but if there's no strategy, how are you going to deploy it? <laughs> Which That's is- right. It's rough. If you are in that point and the priorities are clear, the values are clear, that should be some really strong signals of whether or not they're going to align and if not, what the issues might be and if you do need to adjust what you're doing, because what I would not do is go read a book and say, oh, this is the eureka utopia of how things should be done and try to just like jam that in despite the values of the organization, values of the CEO, the priorities of the organization. But how can you adapt? How can you cherry pick some things over that will fit within those priorities, within those values? I would caution people though, when you're cherry picking, be very careful <laughs> because, you know, if anyone's ever seen the article, I tried baseball and it sucks, then you understand that just kind of piecemealing process any which way that suits your favor is not a good approach, right? There's reasons why people over the years have honed things to work a certain way. But also, I would say that, so do your homework and understand why they work the way they work, but also understand that you don't have to just like steamroll everything. We can bring in the stuff that works and aligns with our needs and, and start building those use cases. Leaning in on the CEO's priorities, I think is a very smart approach. Yeah, I really like that. I think that's a great place to start. And it's like you said at the beginning too, right? It's change is not just changing hearts and minds and cultures. It's actually like changing what you do. And if you don't do strategy right now and you don't do priorities right now, it's a good thing to start changing. <laughs> And actually do those actions and move it forward. Something else popped into my head that I think is really important for folks. And you can't change an organization unless you are willing to change. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the biggest message that people should take with them. Because if you are in that mode of taking some slide decks, and putting together this perfect vision of how you think the org should be, and you're just going around and presenting that, then... You're not listening, you're not changing, you're not adapting, you're not verifying assumptions that you have about the organization or about how things could work. So be willing to change, be willing to listen, tweak your approach, tweak your vision as you go, bring people in as you go, and you'll find that you may end up in a totally different place than you anticipated, but you'll probably be a lot happier and it'll probably be a lot better place. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice for everybody listening. So thank you so much, Douglas, for being on our podcast today. Where can people learn more about you and about Voltage Control? Yeah, Voltage Control is at voltagecontrol.com. Definitely check it out. We are very active on our blog and on just releasing lots of templates and things on our website, lots of free content to engage. And I'm on LinkedIn, pretty active there. So people can find me there as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for listening to the Product Thinking Podcast for everybody out there. If you like this podcast, please go and subscribe so that you can hear more every Wednesday. Next Wednesday, we'll have another Dear Melissa episode where we're answering all of your questions about product management. 
So make sure you go to dearmelissa.com and submit those questions. And we'll see you next time.